Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. with you this morning. Let me just say a quick word about uh, why we're here. Uh, The Henley Foundation uh, was established in honor of a a very well-known Southern Baptist uh, Greek scholar and evangelist, uh, Jesse Henley, uh, that uh, preached all over America uh, for many, many decades, uh, passed away and went home to be with the Lord some time ago. And uh, his son set up the foundation Uh, based on their business in Atlanta uh, and uh, left an amount of money to be placed into that foundation for the specific purpose of teaching Bible prophecy uh, in Southern Baptist uh, seminaries. Uh, Named me in his will uh, to help uh, uh, distribute that money and designate where it would go. So lest you think I gave the million dollars, I had nothing to do with that. I I was only involved in channeling it uh, to... uh, Uh, both southwestern and southeastern, Uh, and uh, uh, we love this school. Uh, We love your president. We love all of you and what you are studying for, preparing for, and what you represent. Uh, Again, we realize uh, there is a diversity of opinion on eschatology, and I'm grateful that you chose today to come uh, to this chapel. Uh, The Day of Prophecy. Uh, I want to remind us, Bible prophecy is not written to scare us. Bible prophecy is written to prepare us. Uh, It's not written to frighten us. It's written to invite us uh, to come to Christ uh, while there's hope, while there's time. Uh, Now, uh, throughout the day today, uh, the other men that are here are going to deliver some tremendous lectures. Don't miss those. Uh, One of the questions that always comes up in relation to uh, the rapture, uh, people will say, well, nobody ever heard of this idea before Darby in 1830. That's a relatively new idea. Uh, well, yeah, so is justification by faith uh, with Luther. But uh, be that as it may, uh, Dr. Watson, who uh, has done an incredible amount of research at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, will share with us this afternoon uh, dozens of pre-tribulational rapture statements that predate Darby, uh, that most scholars are unaware of. And uh, I think you'll find that uh, fascinating and insightful. That alone doesn't prove the view, but it certainly disproves the idea uh, that nobody ever thought of this before 1830. Uh, secondly, uh, Dr. Michael Redelnik from Moody Bible Institute, uh, who is himself a converted Orthodox Jew, uh, and will be speaking this afternoon on Israel and the Church in Prophecy. Uh, There are those who would like to say that the church really is the new Israel and God really has no significant purpose for historic Israel uh, or uh, literal Israel today. And he'll be addressing that issue. Uh, And then there's a QA and a in the afternoon. And then this evening, uh, Dr. Craig Blazing from Southwestern uh, will be speaking on the issue of how do you correlate uh, the prophecies related to the rapture uh, to those of the day of the Lord. 
Uh, so I hope that you'll take time uh, to include that in your day uh, and uh, that you'll find this interesting, challenging, and encouraging. My task is to address the question, can we still believe in the rapture? I mean, after all, come on, Ed, the word rapture is not even in the concordance. Uh, you look in the concordance, you're not going to find the word rapture in the English concordance. Of course, you're not going to find the word trinity either. You're not going to find the word Sunday in the English concordance either. The concept is there, the Lord's Day, the triunity of God, uh, the catching up. But you're right, the English term may not be there. So we want to ask ourselves, is this idea even taught in the Bible itself? Now, if you have your Bible, take it and turn to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. There are many passages in the New Testament that talk about the rapture. But this one clearly defines the various aspects of what happens at the time of the rapture. Remember that Paul is writing this letter very on in his missionary journeys. Most New Testament scholars date Thessalonians somewhere in the early 50s. We're talking about a letter that Paul wrote 20 years, that's all, after the death and resurrection of Christ. He'd gone to Thessalonica, stayed there for three weeks, preached the gospel, led some people to Christ, planted a church, and left. And then he writes two letters back to them addressing issues related to, oh, the second coming of Christ. They want to know, well, Paul, since you were gone... In the last few months, a few people have died. Does that mean they're going to miss the return of Christ? And he answers the question here in the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 13, when he says, and I'll read from the uh, Holman Christian Standard Version, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, uh, concerning those who are asleep or who have passed away, so that you will not grieve like the rest, Others who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and He rose again, we just sang about that, you just cheered about that, uh, it's the confidence in the resurrection of Jesus that gives us confidence in our resurrection as well. For in the same way, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, for this we say to you by a revelation or a word from the Lord, that we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage or will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive will be caught up. There's the term. If you like to mark things in your Bible, you might circle that. Harpazo in the Greek. Boosh, you're out of here. Snatched away, caught away is what it means. Caught up together with them, the dead and the living at the same time. To meet the Lord, notice, in the air, and you might underline that. Not on the earth, but in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with 
these words. It's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven and left us with the promise that if I go back to the Father's house, I will do what? Come again and receive you unto myself. Virtually every Christian denomination on the planet has somewhere in its doctrinal theological statement or affirmation a belief in the second coming of Christ. Catholics, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Charismatics, etc. all believe that ultimately Jesus will return. Even a theologian as non-evangelical as Emil Brunner said, a Christian faith without the expectation of the second coming is like a ladder which leads nowhere. Uh, the whole point of the ascension was, I will return. There must be a time when Jesus returns. But when it comes to interpreting prophecies about His coming, we look at the facts of prophecy which are very clear, very simple. If I go, I will come back, etc. That's pretty clear. Then there are issues of interpretation as to how do we interpret other comments, other statements in relation to the return in which there is a variety of opinions even among believing evangelicals. And then thirdly, there's just plain speculation. When we don't know how all the details work out, people simply guess. My good friend Tim LaHaye says that when the rapture occurs and we go up, all your clothes will fall off uh, and be left behind in a nice neat pile as a testimony of the fact that you've been raptured away. So I want to know, Tim, what about your glasses? What about false teeth, fillings, artificial parts? Some of us would have more left behind than God. You know, there's Grandma. Man, she left a pile. None of that was real. Uh, I don't know. There, there's some things we don't know all the details about. So people with every eschatological view then speculate as to how they think this might occur. But the real issue about the rapture uh, is not about the areas of speculation. The problem is, sometimes people preach their speculations as though they were what? Facts. Uh, instead of staying with the basic facts. Now, the challenge of the doctrine of the rapture uh, is often the whipping boy of today's preachers. Uh, a dear friend of mine I spent, if you looked at my resume, uh, spent a lot of my life, I'm an ordained Baptist minister, spent a lot of my time in Presbyterian and Reformed circles. And I was sitting in a church where a friend of mine in a Presbyterian church was preaching a sermon against the rapture. And he went through this long explanation, and when he got to the end of the sermon, he said, and so you see, there never will be a rapture. All we have to look forward to is trouble, trouble, and more trouble. And his own congregation moaned out loud. There was this, ah, from the crowd. I mean, you get a moan out of Presbyterians, you have really struck a nerve. Uh, but be that as it may. I, I wanted to stand up in the back and shout, Wherefore, comfort one another with those words. But I didn't. <laughs> After the service, I said, Wilson, uh, uh, wait a minute, man. I, I know what you're saying. 
You don't think there will be a pre-tribulational rapture, but there has to be a rapture somewhere, sometime. It's either got to happen before the tribulation, during the tribulation, before the wrath, after the tribulation. There is no tribulation. Uh, Before the millennium, after the millennium, there is no millennium. It's at the end of time. But you've got to put it somewhere. Uh, You can't just get rid of it. You'd have to take 1 Thessalonians 4, rip it out of the Bible, and throw it away. Well, you know, I, you're, I know, I, yeah, I get it. But the problem is, people who don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture often act like there's never going to be a rapture. No, there has to be a time when the dead are raised and the living are caught up. Now, no matter what our eschatology is, we all have a responsibility to use our confidence in the Lord's return to encourage people not only to be prepared to meet the Lord when He comes, but in the meantime, we have a responsibility of spreading the gospel to the world, of cultural engagement, and of social responsibility. Just because I believe Jesus is coming someday, and I think it could be any day, doesn't mean I don't try to do something to make a difference in the world in which I live. It has often been observed that those who are the most heavenly-minded have generally done the most earthly good. Uh, It does not behoove us to say, well, the Lord's coming, so therefore I'm not going to take my responsibility uh, to engage the culture with the power of the gospel. No, we of all people need to be committed to accomplishing that to the glory of God. But when we look at the text that we just read, uh, I think we find at least seven assurances that there will be a rapture. Now, every view has a nuance of truth in it. The pre-tribulationalist wants you to get ready to go in case Jesus were to come today. The mid- and post-tribulationalist says, but you need to be ready to suffer in the meantime for your faith, if necessary. And the post-millennialist wants to challenge us to say, we ought to be here to try to change society in the meantime and make a difference for the cause of Christ. And the amillennialist says, hey, we're ultimately going to heaven anyhow. Uh, And that's what it's all about. Well, ultimately, the world's going to be burned up, according to the Bible. That doesn't mean I shouldn't water my lawn uh, in the meantime. Because I don't know the timing of God, no matter what my view of eschatology is. The two questions I get asked all the time by laymen are, Ed, number one, how much time is left? The answer is real simple. Nobody knows. Uh, Next question. Uh, That's it. Nobody knows the time. So don't waste your time. Trying to guess the time. Be ready all the time because Jesus could come back at any time. Uh, That's the balance. You live with an eye on the sky, but your feet on the earth. Uh, I'm living in anticipation of the fact that He'll come, but in the meantime, I have a responsibility of what I'm to do here on earth. Now, The first thing that stands out in my mind in the text is the reminder. Do not grieve like an unbeliever. Now, that doesn't mean that a believer does not grieve. Of course we do. When a loved one dies, our hearts are broken. But they're not broken without hope. Because we believe that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. That at death, the body may go to the grave... It may go to the dust or to the ashes. 
for the early martyrs to the lions in the Colosseum. But the Spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. Therefore, don't grieve over those who have fallen asleep. And it's obvious that he uses that term as a euphemism for death because you have the same term in Acts 7 when Stephen is stoned to death and is about to die. The Bible says that he was falling asleep. He says, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Don't grieve like an unbeliever with hopelessness that this is the end. It has always amazed me that people who claim to be atheists and say, I don't really believe there is a God. Every time something goes wrong, they get mad at God. Uh, When the bottom falls out of a person's life, believer or unbeliever, what do they intuitively cry out? Oh, God, why did this happen to me? Oh, God, my girlfriend dumped me. Oh, God, I lost my job. Oh, God, I flunked the exam. Uh, Whatever. Why do we do that? Because we're created in the image and likeness of God. We know intuitively there really is a God. And unbelievers get mad when problems come. Believers go to their knees. The unbeliever shakes his fist in the face of God. There's really a God. I'll tell you. He wouldn't. I'll, I'm, you're mad. At, wait, I, you're so mad at God, pal. You're convincing me that He exists. I thought you said He didn't exist. Why don't you curse the planet? Oh, darn you, planet. Uh, oh, curse you, evolutionary processes. Uh, oh, natural selection. Darn you, you are eliminating me. Uh, they don't say that. <laughs> so I always want to blame God. And then turn around and say, He doesn't exist. I won't get into it. Joe Biden today, uh, he went wild. If you saw him on the news, he wants all the terrorists to go to hell. Uh, I'm not even sure he believes there's a heaven, but uh, be that as it may, uh, people get frustrated because they don't have any real hope. Don't grieve like an unbeliever. Number two, you have the reassurance that dead will return. God will bring with him, lead from heaven, those who have died and gone to heaven. So there has to be a time when the Spirit is going to be reunited with a body in a literal resurrection by the power of God. Why do we believe that? Because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So we have the assurance that we too one day will rise from the dead. And at the time of His coming, the parousia, the second coming of Christ, the dead will be raised when they return. Thirdly, the Lord Himself will return uh, to the clouds. He will descend or come down to the clouds and those that are alive will not precede or go before those that have died. For 21 centuries, Christians have believed the message of the Gospel, put their faith and trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ, and believe that His death on the cross was a sufficient payment for their sins. And yet they have died and died and died for 21 centuries. Biblically, if the Spirit is in heaven, the body is in the dust, the passage is saying when the Lord returns from heaven one day, He'll bring that departed Spirit with Him and He'll resurrect the dead, He'll rapture the living, and call us all up to heaven to the Father's house. There are three signals that are mentioned in the passage. The triumphal shout, 
the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. When those occur, God is going to call the entire body of Christ home to heaven. Fourthly, it involves then a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise first. Now that little designation in Christ is used throughout the New Testament uniquely over 50 times to refer to believers in the church age. Those who are in Christ uh, are those that have come to faith in Jesus as Hamashiach, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior. Uh, They have believed that when Jesus stood up on the nails on the cross, pulled Himself up on the spikes, shed His blood, breathed His last, He was making an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That He was not simply dying as a martyr to a cause uh, or as a moral example to society, but He was literally the Son of God incarnate in human flesh who goes to the cross in that body to die in our place and take the wrath of God against our sin upon Himself. And because of His death and His resurrection, we have the assurance that we too one day will rise from the dead. Fifthly, the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 clearly indicates there will be a rapture, a time when the living are caught up. We that are alive and remain will be caught up. Now that tells me several things. First of all, when Jesus returns, there will be believers on the earth. You'll always hear some theological cynic say, well, I don't know if anybody's really saved. Uh, and I don't know when Jesus comes, if he'll, will he find faith on the earth? Well, the answer here is yes. Now that doesn't mean that everybody that makes a profession of faith is really genuinely saved. Uh, in fact, while you're studying here in seminary, you need to answer that question for yourself. The greatest tragedy would be to study about God and the Bible and theology and walk out of here lost one day, never having a personal experience with Christ, never having a real encounter with the Savior. Uh, That's the most important thing. Uh, There are intellectual issues to deal with. There are practical matters to learn to handle. There's a balance to the ministry of life itself. But ultimately... It's about a spiritual journey that God is taking you on from a point of salvation to a point of service. Now, I didn't have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in a totally non-Christian family. No God, no Jesus, no Bible, no church. So how did you come to Christ? A Baptist church built a new building a couple of blocks from our home, sent out a flyer advertising vacation Bible school, And my mother sent me. She didn't even take me. Go down the street. Make sure the light's green. Don't get hit by a car. You'll be fine. Uh, Go there. It'll be good for you. Get out of the house. When I got there, I learned that Jesus loved me, that He died for my sins, that He rose from the dead, that He ascended into heaven, that He was coming again, and that I could have a home in heaven forever, and it was free. I raised my hand. I'm like, I'm in. Yeah, that's a good deal. God in His grace reached down and touched my heart and life, called me unto Himself, and then began to change the whole pattern of what would have been my life. In that moment of encounter with Him, I went from a family every single relative I had was lost. 
When my mother used to say, oh, your uncles are coming over tonight, I'm like, ah, not them. Uh, they'll get drunk, get in a fight, and it'll be a mess. Uh, and what all? God started over with one kid. Maybe you came from a family like that. Maybe you're the first believer in your family. Or maybe like my wife, you come from a long line of believers. She has so many Christian relatives, you can't witness to any of them. They're already all saved. Uh, whatever, it's like being in heaven. Uh, then, you, know, you can't do evangelism in heaven. Uh, if they're not saved, they're not there. Uh, but notice what happens here. At the moment of the rapture, the living are caught up. Now, the term comes from the Latin, rapio, rapere. In most English translations, it's translated caught away, snatched away, caught up. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, this idea is only in 1 Thessalonians 4. You're building a whole doctrine out of that one chapter. No, you're not. There are several raptures in the Bible. Enoch, in the book of Genesis, walked with God, and what happened? He was gone. I don't know if his clothes went with him or not. He's gone. Alive. Elijah is caught up alive in the chariot of fire. And the mantle fell off. But he was raptured away. Philip, the evangelist, after he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, the text in the book of Acts says, and the Spirit of God, Harpazo, caught him up, a temporary rapture, and dropped him down at a different location. The Apostle Paul uses the term arpazo of himself when Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. Harpazo raptured away. Even the ascension of Christ is referred to as a rapture in Revelation, the 12th chapter where you have the passage about the woman who gives birth to the male child and obviously the male child is the symbol of Christ in the passage and the child was eventually caught up perpazzo under the Father in heaven. And then you have the rapture of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Two guys are preaching the gospel. Presumably two born-again Jewish preachers are testifying of faith in Christ, I think during the time of the tribulation, and the Antichrist, the beast, orders their execution, and they are killed, and their dead bodies are left lying in the street in Jerusalem for three and a half days, while all the world watches and sends presents to each other and celebrates their death. I remember way back in the 1950s, hearing a preacher comment on that passage and say, I don't know how the whole world could watch somebody lying dead in a street in a certain location in three and a half days, but maybe it's got something to do with television. Uh, whatever. Pretty good guess. I'd like to be watching CNN on that day because the Bible says the spirit of life enters into them, God resurrects them, and raptures them up to heaven. We're here with CNN, uh, and it's the fourth day now. The two dead guys are still on the street. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They're moving around. Wait a minute, they're getting up. Wow, they're going up. Uh, I'd like to hear him explain that one. Now, why would God go to all the trouble to do a mini-rapture of the two witnesses unless He'd already done the greater rapture and He wanted everybody to understand why those people had actually disappeared? you Got to place the rapture someplace. Now, people will say, well, now, come on. 
you guys who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, you're really teaching two second comings. No, we're not. We're trying to emphasize two aspects of Christ's coming. The rapture is in the air, in the clouds, taken to the Father's house. The return is to the earth. When we, the world is judged and the kingdom of God is literally set up on earth. There are multiple aspects to the first coming. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension. It's all part of the first coming. In fact, at His death, He left and He came back. But it's still all part of the first coming. The second coming, I believe, involves a catching up and then a coming down. In fact, uh, some have delineated at least 15 or 20 differences between the rapture and the return. Now, some will say, well, you know, if your presupposition is that this has to be two different events, then you're going to look for the differences in the air, on the earth, taken away to the Father's house, return to rule with Christ in the kingdom on earth, uh, if you're literal on the premillennial or on the yeah, premillennial position. Uh, but uh, if you're looking for compatibility, you'll find a way to harmonize these. Well, it's true, depending on what your presupposition is. If you're determined to say they can't be the same event, you're going to be convinced there are differences. If you're convinced they have to be the same event, then you're going to look for ways to try to resolve it. For those of us that are speaking today, we don't believe the two events can occur simultaneously. There are too many differences. Now, every eschatological view has to try to take the pieces of the eschatology puzzle and try to put them together in some logical order. I believe the pre-tribulational view genuinely, sincerely tries to do that. Some views just leave all the pieces on the table. Oh, well, pan-millennial. It'll all pan out in the end. Next question. And we'll move on. Uh, don't want to do the hard work. Then, sixthly, you have a reunion. We're with the Lord forever and the entire body of believers are with the Lord forever from that point on. Therefore, the resolution follows. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another that the promise of the rapture is not to discourage, it's to encourage. There must be a time when the dead are raised and the living are caught up. To be fair to the text, you have to put it somewhere. The debate's really only over the, the timing. Now, I believe the purpose of the rapture is at least fourfold. First, to take the bride home to the Father's house, John 14. Jesus tells the believing disciples, Judas having left the room already, that if I go back to the Father's house, I will come again for you. And about six times in that passage, he uses the preposition you, for you believers. Secondly, it takes us to the judgment seat of Christ. If we'll all stand before the Bema seat, judgment, is that different than the great white throne judgment? Is that the time of believers receiving their rewards, their evaluation? And it has to precede the marriage of the Lamb, Revelation 19, because the marriage clearly takes place in heaven. 
You have to get the bride up to heaven to the marriage in order for the marriage to be complete. And in order for it to be complete, it must include all believers of all time and it precedes the triumphal return. You read that passage in Revelation 19 where Christ appears on a white horse, marches out of heaven with an army robed in what? White robes. Where did they get that? In verse 8 of chapter 19, they got it at the marriage. This is not an army of angels. This is the church, the bride of Christ, no longer rejected and martyred and maligned. Now it's the raptured church, home to heaven to the marriage, who marches out of heaven as the church triumphant with her warrior husband, coming back to do what? Reign and rule on earth. To try to just allegorize that away, to me, doesn't take the text seriously. At some point, you have to get the church up to heaven to the marriage to return in triumph. Now, as Dr. Aiken pointed out this morning, while pre-tribulationalism is debated often among scholars, it's the preferred view of people in pews, doesn't make it right, uh, but it's also the preferred view of some very significant pastors. Chuck Swindoll, David Jeremiah, Ronnie Floyd, Charles Stanley, Johnny Hunt, Paige Patterson, and our beloved Dr. Aiken. Ah, why in the world would those guys actually believe this? Let me give you ten reasons why I think, and you can evaluate them for yourself, the rapture has to come before the time of tribulation. Number one, Jesus promised to receive the believers unto himself to take them home to the Father's house. Number two, his instruction to be watching for him to come. In Matthew 24, keep watching for me to come. He didn't say keep watching for the Antichrist to come. I've been in the ministry for over 45 years. I've heard every wild, crazy idea about who the Antichrist is going to be. It's always the American president we don't like. Ah, uh, whatever. It's never the president of Brazil. Pick on him. No, it's always an American president of some kind. Uh, you don't know who the Antichrist You don't want to know who the Antichrist is. You figure out who the Antichrist is, you've been left behind. That's not good. Keep watching for me to come. Be ready for me to come. Pray that you escape the hour of trial coming upon the earth. Luke 21. Uh, Revelation 3.10 That the church would be kept from ek exit out from the hour of trial that is coming upon the earth. So the idea is not simply limited to 1 Thessalonians 4. Thirdly, and I think this is significant, the persecuted woman in Revelation 12 symbolizes Israel, not the church. You say, well, why is that important? Because later in that passage, it's the seed of the woman who are persecuted by the beast who flee into the wilderness. Are those Christian believers, church-age believers? Or are those Jewish people under persecution during the time of tribulation? The woman in that passage is pictured as what? The mother of Christ. With the crown of stars, the sun and the moon at her feet, etc. The very symbolism coming from Joseph's dream in the book of Genesis. The woman is the mother of Christ, but the church is what? The bride of Christ. Your wife is not your mother, I hope, and your mother is not your wife. Those are two totally different people. 
that have a different role. Jesus descends from the line of who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, etc. He's Jewish. He says to the woman at the well, salvation is of the what? Jews, John 4. She knows he's Jewish. She says, how is you a Jew? Talk to me, a Samaritan, etc. Because I've come to be a Savior of what? All people. God is not anti-Arab. I don't have time to deal with that today. Arab is an ethnicity. God calls us to take the message of the gospel to all the ethnos, all the nations, all the ethnic groups. Islam is a religion of a prophet who contradicts the message of Jesus. So it has to be evaluated on that basis. But God is not anti-Arab. God could have let, God could have solved the Arab-Israeli conflict 4,000 years ago by letting Ishmael die in the desert. But he didn't do it. Twice he spared Ishmael's life. Once in the womb, a very powerful pro-life passage, and then later as a teenager. God said, I'll bless him and still make of him a great nation, etc. God is not against any people because of their ethnic or racial background. He's the Savior who can unite the Arab and the Jew, who can unite the black and the white, the Asian and the Westerner, the Northerner and the Southerner, because He's the Savior who is the same for all who would open their heart and respond to Him. Number four, the church is not the object of divine wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we're not appointed under wrath, but to obtain what? Salvation. You say, why is that important? Because in the book of Revelation, the judgments in Revelation, the sealed judgments are called the wrath of who? The Lamb, Christ. And the bowl judgments are called the wrath of God the Father. Well, if wrath is being poured out in the time of tribulation, you're going to pour out the wrath of God on the church? Now, someone will always say, well, the church has always suffered persecution, rejection, even martyrdom. Right. The wrath of man and the wrath of Satan, but not the wrath of Jesus. Jesus took the wrath for us on the cross. When He stands up on the nails and shouts, My God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of God falls on Him in that moment. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He takes the punishment of the wrath on our behalf. You don't beat up the bride of Christ and then take her to the wedding. Ah, I'm going to beat you up. Then you can go be married to me and this is going to be great. I don't think so. I hear a few Wesleyans occasionally say, well, now, come on, it's, it's for the purification of the bride, for the ultimate second blessing of the bride, etc., that sounds to me like Protestant purgatory. Ah, uh, you're going to beat her up, beat the sin out of her, then take her to the marriage? And why would you only beat up the last generation of believers and what happened to the other 21 centuries of people? Anyway, chew on that one. Number five, the rapture's imminent. Titus 2.13, it's the blessed hope of the believer. It's not like, ah, oh, it's really going to get horrible and terrible and then, ah, oh, it'll finally come. The rapture is instantaneous, 1 Corinthians 15. In a flash, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we're gone. The rapture is unique for those who are in Christ, for church-age believers. Number eight, the rapture precedes the Bema Seat judgment where the believers are evaluated and the rewards or lack of them are distributed. 
And the rapture obviously precedes the marriage, and it obviously precedes the battle of Armageddon. So depending on your view, I'm not looking for Armageddon. Will it eventually come? Yes. Is it the next thing on the calendar? I don't think so. Everybody wants to know, when is Jesus coming back? And I told you earlier, nobody knows. Now, the older you are, the sooner you want Him to come back because you're running out of time. Uh, the younger you are, you're thinking, man, I'm not in a hurry. i got my whole life to live. I don't want Him to come back too soon. I haven't graduated yet. I didn't get my degree yet. The God who loves you enough to send His Son to the cross will come back when the time is right. You can trust Him for that. The other question always is, when's the mess in the Middle East going to come to an end? And the answer is it isn't. Not until He returns. Now, in the meantime, do we pray for peace? Yes. Work for peace? Yes. Do everything we can to be accountable and responsible? Yes. But the fact, in my opinion, that Israel's back in the land today, flashing light gets my attention, Crisis in the Middle East is not exactly quiet. Uh, the global economy already exists. And weapons of mass destruction have already been invented. How much time do we have left? I don't know. I can't tell you if you have five minutes, five years, 50 years. But I don't think the human race has 500 years. Given the depravity of the human heart, the proclivity toward destruction and the potential of the weapons of mass destruction that are at our disposal, it's only a matter of time until somebody uses them. So that alone ought to tell us, no matter what your view is, you're getting closer and closer to the time when He will come. Now, I want you to help me conclude the message. Turn to the person on your right and on your left, one of whom you probably came with, look them right in the face and say, no matter what your view is, one day Jesus is coming, and then ask him, Are you ready? Go ahead. It's all right. You can do it. Now, I trust that you didn't say, I hope so. That's a wrong answer. Well, I'm doing the best I can. That'll never do it. God already did the best He could when He sent Christ to die for our sins and take our place. The message of the gospel, uh, the message of salvation, the call to service, the anticipation of His return, all of that is designed to give us hope in the future. That I don't need to worry about the future. God is on the throne. God is in control. He'll do what's right when the time is right. The question is, am I going to do what He wants me to do in the meantime? And their answer should be yes. Amen. Whatever you want me to do in whatever time I have left, whether you come or I go, my life is yours to serve you. Father, I pray this morning, bless our hearts, challenge our minds, stir our soul that we might realize the incredible love that You have for us. You died for the bride. You love the bride. You're coming again for the bride. 
Help us to have a high enough view of the bride to understand why you would come for her before you declare war on the world. In the meantime, help us as members of that bride to display Jesus, not just in what we think or say, but in how we live. That our heads might be used to study, but our hearts might be inflamed with passion and our hands and feet engaged with service to the glory of God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.